Hello, and welcome to another great message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. Thanks for joining us today. For notes and video related to this message, please visit www.parkviewchurch.org. Good morning. Welcome to Parkview. I'm Doug, one of the pastors here, and we are finishing our study of the book of Nehemiah today. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Nehemiah. If you have a phone app, you can slide to it. Uh, you've got an outline in your bulletin. You could follow along too. So um, it's great to have you with us. If you're brand new at Parkview today, I'd love to meet you. Uh, or you can talk to somebody at Parkview Connect and learn more about the church. But it's great to have you here. So uh, this, I'm a little sad we're done with this book because we've learned a lot I feel like over the last nine weeks from this guy named Nehemiah. And again, just to kind of recap, if you're new with us, he was a, just an average guy. He's not a priest, not a prophet. He was just working a job. He was a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. He himself was a Jew. He was sent into exile about 800 miles away from Jerusalem. And one day on the job, he heard that the walls of Jerusalem were down that God's people were vulnerable, that they were exposed, that they were suffering. And so Nehemiah's heart broke for that, and he moved from a place of comfort into a place where God could use him to, to help people that were in a broken spot. In a lot of ways, Nehemiah is a picture of Jesus, moving from a place of comfort, like when Jesus went from heaven and came to earth to, to rescue broken people like us. So in a much smaller way, but yet a noble way, Nehemiah did the same thing where he moved toward Jerusalem, toward the brokenness. And so in 52 days, this guy just led these people to build a wall over a mile in circumference, about 39 feet high, about nine feet wide at the top of the wall. This is quite an endeavor. And it's a really interesting book because out of the 13 chapters, eight of them are written in the first person. So it's like you're reading a guy's journal about what he's doing and what he's struggling with and what he's thinking. And so one thing that you'll notice in the book of Nehemiah is about a third of the book is a list of names. And so, and, and especially when you think about the parts that were handwritten, like chapter three, Nehemiah is writing out name after name after name of people that helped him complete this project. So Nehemiah is not just a guy that says, oh, I'm going to use a bunch of people to get a job done. Like he cared about each of those people, which is why you see that after chapter eight, it is seven or eight, when, I'm sorry, after, after chapter six, when the wall is finished, that Nehemiah doesn't just leave. His job wasn't just to build the wall, but his job also was to build the people. He loved these people. And so you see from chapter seven through 12, there's kind of a real move toward the people to restore them in their relationship with God. So he brings in his buddy Ezra, who's a teacher a priest. He knows the scripture. And so they teach God's word to the people. The people are convicted of sin. The people then are taught that God moves toward us in our sin. The joy of the Lord is our strength, that God enjoys moving toward sinners and offering forgiveness. And then you see feasts and celebrations. And then in chapter 10, you see these people make all these commitments to God. Okay, God, in light of all you've done for us, we will do this and this and this. And there's a couple more chapters there. And so it would have been perfect if the book of Nehemiah would have just ended in chapter 12. It'd be like perfect Hollywood ending. Nehemiah rides off into the sunset, roll the credits. You know, he's got his fist in the air, victory, mission accomplished. So, but the problem is there's a chapter 13. And chapter 13 is like a downer, to be honest with you. Welcome to Downer Sunday, right? Because what you're going to see is that Nehemiah, after chapter 12, went back to King Artaxerxes. They're not sure if it was a year or two, but let's say around two years. And then he asked if he could go back and see how things were going in Jerusalem. 
And when he got back, the people had completely dropped the ball. They had completely drifted away from God. In spite of all the things they saw God do, in spite of all of God's greatness and goodness put on display for them, they drifted from their very basic commitments that they made. And you're going to see in chapter 13, it ticks Nehemiah off. He's going to pull out hair. He's going to throw furniture. He's going to lay hands on people. And it's not like the kind, I'm going to pray for you, brother. It's like this kind of lay hands on. So it's a really interesting chapter. And again, you go, God, why is there a Nehemiah 13? And I think the reason there's a Nehemiah 13 is that this book, the Bible, is like a mirror. Like if you look at our lives, how many times have you had maybe in a movement of God into your life or God has done something great for you and you just start making, God, I promise I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And then it's not much longer that you've kind of drifted from that, right? Even just like, okay, first of the year was about almost three months, three full months ago, like your new commitments to working out, to eating better, uh, more time at home. Like, how, how are those things going? Like, so we, we tend to be a people that, like, real quick to say, I'm there, I'm going to do this. And then, and then we drift. And the sad thing is, we even do that with God. You know, we've even, we sung a song about it, that, that we're prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. That we're prone to leave the God that we love. And so, I, I, as hard as it is to read Nehemiah 13, it is so good for us because this is, this is real. This is us. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat things. The Bible just talks to us as we are. And so my goal this morning is not to just take your face, and God's goal this morning isn't to take your face and just shove it into, yeah, you just always drift from me. That's not the heart of God. The heart of God today is to warn us that and maybe this morning you're not drifting from God, I don't want you to feel excluded. Cheer up. That'll probably still come sometime for you, right? There probably still will be times that you drift from God. And God's desire isn't to shove your face into that, but God's desire is to show you the reality of the gospel, the reality of his goodness to you, in spite of the fact that we're drifters. And then the other thing I want us to get is, how can we tether our hearts so they don't wander, so they don't just go floating away, but how can we tie our hearts so to God's heart so we don't have these times of drift. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into uh, this, this chapter. So before we do, could you pray um, this morning that God would, would show you if you're drifting this morning? God, just say, God, uh, and, and God loves you. God, God knows where your heart is. He's maybe the only one in this room that knows for sure where your heart is. So just could you ask him just quietly where you are? God, am I drifting from you this morning? Could you show me? areas of my life that I'm drifting from you. And, and I don't know why, but this morning has been a scattered morning for me. Like, I love this chapter. I love this theme. I'm having a hard time just keeping it focused. Could you just, could you pray for me uh, to speak clearly today from God's Word, just that I I'm just clear. Just pray for that. God, thank you that you love us enough to show us our hearts. And then after you show us our heart, you show us yours. And so may what we do today result in us, any drifter in this room, may that result in us coming back to you. And God, those of us that aren't drifting right now, may there just be a tether bound from our heart to yours so that we don't drift. And so speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so um, 
If you have an outline that'll help you follow us where we're going, it's in your bulletin there. You can do that. And we're going to basically look at three drift factors. What were three things that happened to these people that kind of caused them to drift a little way from God? And I apologize. Like this very first part we're going to read, I'm just tossing you into the deep end of the Old Testament pool. And so if you start, I'm going to throw you a little floaty here too. So let's hang through it. Don't, don't, don't get lost right away. We'll, we'll, we'll get through it together. Okay, so let's do this. Nehemiah 13 verse 1. It says, on that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but they hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. And as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those who are of foreign descent. Okay, I warned you, deep end of the pool. Like, this is, they're reading from, from the book of Moses. That's the first five books of the Bible. And one of the stories there talks about a time where God's people were wandering through the wilderness and really were in need of water and food. And that these people groups, especially the Ammonites and Moabites, just completely rejected God's people, just completely disrespected them, even hired a prophet to call down curses on God's people. They just hated God's people. And so in that context, God, out of his love for his kids, said, you've got to stay away from those people. Those people hurt you. And, but what I'm seeing here, and you're going to see it as we go in through the text, is that there's maybe an overreaction here too. Reading that and completely pulling away from all that aren't Jewish is not necessarily the heart of God. Okay, But it's maybe a bunch of people that got caught, maybe intermingling more than they should have, got caught, and now they're just going to the totally other extreme. Okay, that's all you need to know for now. We'll keep going. Okay, we'll come back to that. Okay, verse 4. So now before this, Eliashab, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by the commandment to the Levites, the singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king, and I came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Eliashab had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. And then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back the vessels to the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Okay, now what's going on here? So if you've been with us in Nehemiah, Tobiah has been an enemy of God's people and of the walls and of Nehemiah from the get-go. If you remember in chapter 2, when Nehemiah and his crew was first coming into Jerusalem, Tobiah was on the welcoming committee. Let's just put that in quotes. Like he was the guy that was taunting them from the very beginning. Uh, Tobiah is anti-God, anti-wall of Jerusalem, anti-Nehemiah. He's the guy that started making fun of their wall when they were building it. He's the guy that said, oh, if a fox jumps on your wall, it'll just fall down. And so, and so from the get-go, he's been against this whole movement. You saw Tobiah in chapter 4. You saw him in chapter 6 even hire a false prophet to go predict to Nehemiah that he's going to get murdered and that he just needs to go back to where he came from. Like consistently, Tobiah has been against God and Nehemiah and the project of the wall. Okay, so, so now Nehemiah goes away for a year or two, comes back, and of all things, 
the priest has now cleared out a prime space in the temple courts, okay, where usually you kept all the supplies for worship and for the sacrifices and, and for God to be, to be praised. All that's been cleansed out, and now you've moved Tobiah in there. He's got like a condo right there in the courtyard, like where, again, people should be coming to worship God or to be comforted by God, and you put this guy right in there. I mean, there's so many things about Tobiah. He was the ultimate conniver. They think the way that he wormed his way into this was through marrying somebody prominent. And so he's the kind of guy that is against you, against you, against you. But then maybe when things start going well for you, then he pretends like he's on your team. Like it's the guy that just started wearing a Cubs hat. Like, come on, man, where have you been? Where have you been all these decades and decades, right? So he's that guy, okay? Except even worse, he's been anti-God and now he's, pretend, he's a pretender. He's right in there. Man, Nehemiah sold right through that. And so there's absolutely no way you can bring that kind of influence into the place where people are trying to, trying to meet with God. And so, man, he's throwing furniture out of this guy's condo and he's like going nuts. Okay, this is, some people think that Nehemiah might be getting towards the end of his days, a little shorter temper, a little crotchety, all those kind of things. So we'll talk about that in a little bit too. But I'm not saying go home and do what Nehemiah did. There's no, maybe, most likely, no need to throw furniture out of a house today, but we'll, we'll keep going with this. Okay, so that's another instance. So God is concerned about the influences in his people's lives. If you jump down to verse 23, you're going to see this theme one more time. And this time the theme has to do with intermarriage, with believers marrying unbelievers. Okay, so you look at verse 23. Nehemiah says, In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, and that's from the region of the Philistines, if you remember David and Goliath, Goliath was a Philistine. So they're marrying women from that culture, from Ammon and from Moab. Again, just kind of long-term enemies of God, anti-God kind of folks. Verse 24, And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them, and I beat some of them, and I pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Then he gives this example from history. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Uh, among the many na- nations, there was no king like him. Uh, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all of Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Okay, let's clarify a couple of things here right quick. There are people that have actually taken this passage and said, God is against interracial marriage. That is not what this passage is saying. What God is warning his people about is not interracial marriage or God's not being racist here. God's not preferring one ethnicity over another or one culture over another. He's just warning his people. Do not bring into close proximity in your life people that don't believe in me, people who aren't following me. Do not marry unbelievers. And he just lifts up Solomon as the example. Solomon was an amazing king, had a vast kingdom, was loved by God. But the downfall for Solomon was when he started marrying wives from other cultures that believed in other gods and that even it got to the point where Solomon was building temples and places of worship for his wives to worship. It's like, what are you thinking? Like God God doesn't go there. God says that I am to be in first place in the league of your life. And so and so that's uh, that's the big issue here. And so um 
it's really interesting. God is, the thing that came out of that text too was the part about the children and the language they were speaking is that the language weren't even speaking the people, the language of God's people, which means what? They weren't probably been familiar with God's word. They probably weren't familiar with how you worship God and the words you sing when you're worshiping God. Like these people are allowing their children to just be kind of influenced totally away from God. And so it's interesting. I um, started um, some premarital counseling with a couple that's just brand new to all the God stuff. And all the, all the Bible stuff's brand new to them. And it's been a blast. Really open and receptive. When I asked them, like, so so why, why are you here? Like, why, why do you, you've never really been to church that much. You don't really know me. Why, why do you want to, now, why do you want it? He goes, I loved how he put it, because I've said it before, but he said it better. It's like, when I'm single and just kind of doing winging life however I want to, you know, if anybody gets hurt, that's me. But I'm bringing somebody in my life now that I really love, and I want to make sure I do this right. I want to make sure I treat her right. And I feel like getting married is one of these moments where God grabs us right here and says, I, I need your attention. I need you to follow me. And so it's the same principle here. God's saying, like, if you're going to just start marrying people that don't even believe in me, what are, what are you doing to your family? What kind of influences are you allowing into your home? Um, and we can apply that more broadly, too. Just like if you go positive, when you see a Christian do something like courageous or humble or generous, doesn't that fire you up? It's like, man, I want to do that, too. You know, but if you see a believer go the other direction and start compromising or start sliding, that tends to pull people with you as well. And so bottom line, out of all three of these situations, what's going on here is that God wants to be first place in the league of our lives. He wants to be number one seed in your brackets. I don't know what your NCA brackets look like. They're probably wrecked if they're like mine. So, But when God isn't number one in the brackets of your life, then also your life is just wrecked. That's why God says... You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's why God describes himself as a jealous God. God is jealous for your affections. And if your affections start going some other place besides him, then he's jealous of that. And so let's, let's catch that a little bit too. If I were to say that to you, like, I want to be the most important person in your life, like, that's sick, right? That's egotistical and that's wrong. But when God says that, he is, I think, the only one in all of creation that can say that. I need to be in first place of your life. And that's not egotistical. That's just reality. That when God is the first affection in our lives, that what we love is what we're looking to for, you know, our significance, our security, our provision, our strength. And so out of every option on this planet, God alone deserves that place to be number one in the league in our lives. And so what's concerning to God is that when there are other things vying for our affection and our love and for first place, then that's a dangerous place for us. He loves us. And so that's what's going on here. God is very concerned about the influences in, in our lives. He wants us to have healthy associations with people, but he doesn't want us to be with people who are going to push us from him. He wants to make sure that the people closest to us are those that are pushing us toward him. Okay? And so... Let's kind of clean this up a little bit. Um, I think what happens to us sometimes is that we can know about God and we can know about who God is. We don't say this, but what we, what we kind of say to him is, okay, God, we see who you are, but you're not quite enough. Because I also want to look around and I want to see what other people are doing, what other people have. And wow, there's some people that have some stuff that I don't have and they don't follow you, but I kind of like what they have. 
I kind of like what they look like, or I kind of, I kind of like what they can do. And so our allegiances start going towards, towards people and can start pulling us um, away from God. So I think social media has just expanded that capability in our hearts. Like, no longer can you just go on a spring break as a dad right now with your kids. What it turns into is spring break competition 2017 because your kids are networked with what other kids are doing and you're constantly hearing, you know, what other families are doing. And you're like, well, I thought we were just trying to have a great time here. So like it can happen at that level or for high school kids soon, it's going to be prom proposal competition. Like, how did you get proposed to for this? And so there's a constant looking around and comparing and there's so many ways we do that anyway as people. But I just feel like social media is just putting it out there. Look how beautiful our family is. Look at all the great things we get to do. And so, and so just so naturally, the people around us will either push us toward God or will pull us, will pull us from God. And so what I think when you read through the scriptures, you look, what God looks for is for us to have healthy associations in our lives. And let's go both ways with this. Number one is that I think God longs for us to be a people who reaches out to anyone. That God, heaven is populated with people from every tribe, language, people, nation. God loves all people. We're all created in his image. Jesus came to die for the whole world. And so Jesus himself has says that he came to seek and to save lost people. That Jesus was, a fr- he was called a friend of sinners. And so, um, and I'm glad he was, because that means he could be my friend and yours, right? So, and so we're called to be like Christ in that we're called to go out and befriend people who don't know God. But when you look on the other side of that equation, let me just, I'm sorry, let me back up a little bit. There's even an example in the Old Testament of somebody from the people of Moab that became a follower of God. In fact, again, when I said earlier where they made that commitment, no more association with people that aren't Jewish. It's like, Actually, God's heart is still for those people. There's actually provisions in your law for people that are from other people groups who want to follow God to come and join you. And so Ruth is an example of that. Ruth is um, a woman that a whole book of the Old Testament is written about her. She was from Moab, and she actually became very prominent in the lineage of Jesus. She's David's grandmother of all people. And so, so it's clear that God has a heart for people from Moab, people from Ammon, uh, so God wants his people to reach out, but at the same time, God wants us to protect who is it that's influencing you? Who is it that's in your inner circle? So you see like 1 Corinthians fifteen don't be deceived that bad company corrupts good morals. Or you look at 2 Timothy 2.22, where it says, flee youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. And so you know, you might say, well, we've taken a lot of time this morning just talking about our associations and our relationships. So this is a big deal to God, is that, is that he would love to make sure that you keep him number one in the league of your life. It's best for you. And make sure you're being wise in who are the people that are your inner circle who influence you the most. But then he also wants to make sure that you are out there living your life, making sure that you're befriending people who don't know who God is and that you're able to point them to him. Okay, so that's the first one. That's the longest. Okay, there's two more that are a little shorter. Okay, but that was one drift factor is watch the people in your life. Are they pushing you toward God or from God? Second one is this. A second cause of drift can be our money. Okay, so you look at verse 10. He says, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, 
so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and they said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and I set in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, the wine and oil into the storehouses. Okay, so what's, what's kind of really frustrating to Nehemiah here is in chapter 10, just two years earlier, these people were making all kinds of commitments. Oh, we promise we will tithe. We will make sure the temple is ready to roll and the priests will be cared for. Like they made all these great statements. But just two years later, a lot of the priests were gone. The reason they were gone is they had nothing to live on. They had to go back to their farms. They had to go out to the fields just to live. And so that meant there weren't people performing you know, the sacrifices, the worship services, so people could, could worship God. Like They had totally neglected their commitment to to God and to the temple and to the worship. And so um, just a huge, a huge sign there of, of drift. In fact, Jesus warned us that our hearts are going to follow our treasure. Jesus warned us that we can't serve God and money. We're going to choose between one or the other. And so just like Jesus spoke to, uh, Nehemiah was experiencing. These people were siding with their money and not their commitments uh, to God. And so um, God talks a ton about our money in the Bible, okay, just a ton. And the reason why isn't because God needs our money. He's not like, oh, I'm having a rough month. I wish my people would give to me better. Like God, God does fine without us. But again, God wants our hearts. And he knows that where our money is going, that's where our hearts are going to go. And he wants to be first place in the league of our lives. And in fact, I think as a God who wants the best for us, you know, remember the verse in the New Testament that says, God loves a cheerful giver. That word cheerful um, literally means hilarious. Like that, that he loves it when people are giving and, and they're, they're hilarious about it. Like sometimes for us, giving can be an act of grief. Oh no, where's that going? So much I could do with that. But um, it's interesting. There's a guy named Christian Smith from Notre Dame um, and he co-authored this study. I don't remember the other author. Um, but they did a survey of the United States and they just measured people in, in levels of generosity both with their, their finances, but also with their time. And so they have a way of scoring like on a generosity scale. And they found that the people on the highest end of the generosity scale were also the people that scored high on, they did another scale of happiness, of well-being. So things like low stress, things of healthy relationships, things like not being in debt, you know, those kind of factors. They found, the study is called, you can Google it, and there's some good summaries of it. It's called the paradox of generosity. The paradox of generosity. Not necessarily a Christian study, but just it definitely uh, underscores Christian values. When it says God loves a cheerful giver, I think what God's getting at is that the truth is that people who are generous tend to be, uh, and even by that secular study, uh, the most joyful, the most content, the most happy people. And there's a paradox there because the message we get sent is the more you hoard, the more you save, the more you keep for yourself, the more you have your own downtime, not, you know, I don't want to serve other people, I'm just going to have my time. Like the more you do that, actually the, the less happy you, you are. And I think the big reason for that is that we are created in the image of God. We're image bearers. And so just like our God is a generous God, the more we live like our God, the more fulfilled we are, the more we're living as we are called to live. So um, think of Psalm 8411. It says, The Lord is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Or Philippians 419, 
that my God will supply all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And so um, just another thing to watch for is that we may be missing out on intimacy with God. We may be missing out on joy just by the fact that we're not being generous, that we're not, we're not giving. And so again, God talks about money not because he needs ours, but he wants our hearts. He wants first place in our lives. So that was another area of drift for them. The third area of drift um, has to do with the Sabbath. And again, this one's a little different for us, but there's a principle here I want us to catch. So verse 15, um, in those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine and grapes and figs and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And if you continue in there, you see there's people selling fish, all kinds of different goods. And so Nehemiah gets mad at that. He runs those people out of the city on the Sabbath day, even closes the gates to keep them out. And then what he finds is that those same people are setting up their shops like right outside the wall so that they could maybe entice the people. Hey, no, it's a Sabbath. We're not allowed in there. Why don't you come on out here and we'll still sell you some fish. We'll, we'll sell you some grain. And so, and so they're still doing it. And so Nehemiah threatens them. He says, if you keep doing that, I'm going to lay my hands on you. And again, that's not the lay my hand on you to pray for you. That's like this kind of lay my hands on you. That's like choke you. That's like push you. That's like punch you, right? So again, Nehemiah, are you like just getting a little old here? You get a little cranky. What's going on? And so what just really bugged Nehemiah here is like, and you see this when he's confronting people and their sins, like, guys, don't you realize this is exactly what our forefathers did? We offended God. We violated the Sabbath. And God sent us into exile. It's like, guys, wake up. Don't you see what we're doing and how destructive this is? And so, again, now we are now out of the Old Testament time. We're New Testament believers. We're after the cross of Christ. The Old Testament law that was there for God's people as the nation of Israel does not like cover us in the same way today. So then how do you take this whole principle of Sabbath? And I would say this, that even though there's not the repeated law in the New Testament for Sabbath, what you see consistent throughout the scripture is that God loves it when his people reserve time to be in his presence. Uh, Jesus lived this way. That Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray, the Bible says. Like there's just this rhythm. Or even the early church, they no longer worshiped on the Sabbath on the last day of the week, but they worshiped, they set aside a day to worship on the first day of the week to line up with the resurrection of Christ that we see throughout the scripture that followers of God designate time to be in God's presence, to worship him. And so again, you got to ask, okay, why? What's God after here? And I think once again, that God is after our hearts. God is after there being places in our lives where we identify ourselves as his kids. Let me explain that a little bit. I think um, the way we roll is, okay, so tomorrow's Monday. We're going to set a whole, most likely, We've got some plans for this week, okay? And there's something in us. They say, okay, as a dad this week, I got to just, I want to just nail it. So I'm going to do these things this week. And as a husband, I want to do these things. At, at my job this week, I've got to do these things. Maybe you've got ministry commitments or friendships or other things you're involved in. You look at your list to do this week and you just put your head down and you just run through that, okay? And then Saturday comes and you look back at that list. And if you're like me, like if that, if you nailed everything on that list, you're going to be, it's a good week, man. Got through that. I nailed that, okay? So, and so, and so there's some healthy things to that. It's not, that's not all bad. 
But what happens to us if we just keep living our lives like that, like what I'm going to do, what I'm going to do, activity, 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 um, what happens then is our identity can get on a roller coaster that if we got everything done that week, we're going to feel good. If we did not get everything done that week, we're, we're going to struggle. We're going to beat ourselves up. It's like, I'm going to work harder. I got to do that better. And so what I think God wants us to do is get off that roller coaster and just remember who we are. That he's not so much about always our doing, but what about our being? Like just, to, just to remember who we are. That even, you know, that in a healthy spot, we realize that we have a loving, gracious God who, who, who is with us. And so when you look back at that week and you see those six days of productivity, you realize that wasn't just me. Like that was God giving me that strength, God giving me the ability to, it was God with me that, that got that done. And so, because that's, that's the whole way we enter this relationship with God. It's not about what we did, but it's about who we are because he forgives us in Christ. And so we can so get off track when it's just about busy, 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 do, 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 and there's no God in our schedule. There's no, there's no time of prayer in the morning. There's no time in his word during the week. There's no gathering to worship on a weekend. There's no gathering during your week with other believers. If we're, if we're taking all those things out, then we're just, our, our identity is off. Our identity is going to be all about what we're doing instead of who we are, who we are. He's a God that just says, you know, in my presence, just be still and know that I'm God. And that when we, we operate more out of who we are, and we are just so much more productive in the rest of our time. And so, but that's going to be a battle for us that still our hearts will be drawn not to, because there's so many times it just feels like a waste of time. Okay, if I'm going to spend an hour worshiping God, if I'm going to spend a half hour reading my Bible, there's, man, there's so many things I could be doing on my list. It's so like, again, that's just showing that we're, we're just off. Our identity isn't in our performance, but our identity is in who we are. And that's what God wants his people to know and understand. And so, so some key points that we've seen is that God lovingly likes to confront our sin, that when we're drifting from him, whether it be when we're praying or when we're reading his word or when you're around other people who love you enough to tell you that God likes to confront our sin and let us know that we're drifting from him, okay? And could I just say this especially, if you have someone in your life that does that for you, that, that speaks truth in your life when they see that you're drifting or they see that, that you're in, in sin, that's an amazing gift because I, I think there's fewer and fewer places where that comes to us today. And, and if you are that person who, isn't that an awkward place to be in some ways? Like if you see somebody, somebody you care about, but they're, they're off and, and you feel like God's calling you to do that, that takes courage because you're, you're risking that relationship. And most likely you're going to hear some defense. Oh, I was having a bad day. It's like, actually, you've been having about a bad five years. Like, so, or so, I mean, you're going to hear that or, or the script could get flipped. Like, oh yeah, well, what about you? You do all this. Like, so just, that whole act of stepping in and helping somebody else see where they're drifting is a real act of love because you're going you're gonna to have to push through some possible you know, negative things there. But, but what an amazing gift. So God does give us through prayer. He lets us know when we're drifting. Through his word, he can let us know where we're drifting. But I think the one we're missing the most is, is just from other believers, other people who truly love us. And if John McHale were standing right here, he is our community groups pastor, he would love that I'm going to say this right now, that I would say that's one of the, the places in our groups to continue to build, that there's a time in our community group structure that's called 
a time of formation groups, a time where you break up with each other in smaller groups and you give each other access to your life. Hey guys, if you see me messing up here, you get on me. Like you give permission for people to speak truth into you when we're drifting because we all have blind spots and it could be that we're drifting this morning and we're not aware. And so one of the beautiful ways God provides for us to catch ourselves if we're drifting is through is through each other, okay? So that's one thing that's been clear. God loves to confront our sin in, in love. He loves to do that. And that confronting sin is an urgent issue. I'm not saying today leave and pull out hair and throw furniture and lay your hands on people necessarily, but, but I think we can be very, very passive about dealing with sin. And Nehemiah was just urgent in how he dealt with sin, okay? So the one other thing I want us to catch is, um, is what, I'm just going to ask, what kept Nehemiah strong? How come all the other folks were drifting? And how come he was the one that saw it and called them back consistently through this man's life? It seems like he's been the guy that's been tethered close to God's heart. How did that happen? There's three, there, throughout the book, there's many prayers. You just get to hear him praying to God, long prayers, short prayers. In chapter 13, there's three times he just throws out a one-sentence prayer. And I think each of these prayers kind of shows what tethered his heart to God. The first one was in verse 14, where he says, Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Nehemiah was, had, and we've seen it throughout the book, had a deep awe for God. God, you are astonishing. You are my rock. You are my refuge. And God, I do this for you. Like you... You deserve this. You deserve me serving you because you are awesome. You are great and awesome is a phrase we've seen throughout the book that Nehemiah was tethered by an awe, an awe for God. And so when Nehemiah tethered when everybody else wandered, and he was so aware of God's strength. And, and so with that, his need for God in his life, okay? So uh, here's his second prayer. Look at this one. He says um, in verse 22, he prayed, God, remember this also in my favor, O oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. I love that. Just throughout the book, we've seen God is great and awesome. God is great and awesome. This is the first time Nehemiah has coupled that great concept with God's love. That God is steadfast, as great as he is in all that he's made and all that he's created. He is equally great in his ability to still love his people. When they wander from him, he still identifies as their God, even though they reject him and, and stray and wander two years later, still living like they used to live. And so Nehemiah is just blown away by the steadfast love of God. And that keeps him close. That keeps him tethered. And so God is so patient with you. Um, and, and God so wants you to be grounded in his love for you. One of the roles, if you're a follower of God, he's given you the Holy Spirit. And one of the Holy Spirit's roles is just to pour the love of God into your heart. Because I, I think that's one of the hardest things for under, us to understand. How could God love people like us that just drift away? Um, I just had a beautiful conversation yesterday with somebody who is this close to becoming a Christian, and their hang-up right now, I, I think it's the first time I've heard this as a hang-up. Their hang-up is, how could God really love me that much? I, I do not deserve that kind of love. It's like, you know what, once you believe this, you still will never get that out of your head. Like, how could God love us that much? And so, but that's, that's the truth that held Nehemiah close, the steadfast love of God. And the third one was this. He says, remember them, O God, 
because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. So that prayer, he's just saying, God, notice what they're doing to the work of the priests. And so the reason that was so important to Nehemiah is because it was the work of the priests that reminded the people of the goodness of God. That God, we saw this in in Nehemiah 8, that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And we saw in that chapter that the joy of the Lord is moving towards sinful people and offering them forgiveness. And when those people respond, there is great joy. We saw that there's great joy in heaven when sinners repent. And so Nehemiah knew that, that another thing that tethered him to God's heart is that God is good. God moves toward us when we sin. That God longs for our repentance, for, our, for us to receive his forgiveness so that we can be close to him again. So uh, let's do this uh, to close. Um, let me just give you a chance to just pray. And at the beginning of this sermon, I asked you to ask God, how have you been drifting? And so are there some things that he's shown you? Let's start there. Are there some things that he's shown you? Again, in his love, not putting your face in it, not to beat you down, but to call you back. And so could you just confess that to him and say, God, yes, I have other things ahead of you in my life. You're not number one in the league of my life. So this would be a good time to confess those things. This would also be a good time to just reflect on how God has been great in your life, how God has been good to you uh, in your life, how God has put his steadfast love on just full display in your life. The things that kept Nehemiah close to God, could those be the things this morning that bring you bring you back to God. He is good to you. He's steadfast in his love for you, and he's great. And all of that was just made so clear through the gospel. We're about to celebrate Easter. We're about to celebrate the resurrection, but the whole power of the cross that Jesus moved towards sinful people like us, gave his life for us on the cross, died, and then rose again, just puts on full display God's greatness, his power over sin and death, but also puts on full display the love of God, that Jesus, out of his love for you, died for you. And it puts on full display the goodness of God, that God is willing to offer any one of us, no matter how far we've strayed from him, forgiveness and and new life with him. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Parkview Church. We pray that you are blessed by God's Word. For additional teaching, resources, podcasts, as well as information on who we are and our upcoming events, please visit our website at www.parkviewchurch.org.